Welcome to Collisions YYC, Beyond the Echo. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. In this special series of episodes, I tackle the question of how does the world see Calgary and what can we learn from it? This is a journey of curiosity, of taking the time to gain the insights of the people that are outside of our day-to-day conversations. I'm seeking to learn where there are gaps, misunderstandings, and most importantly, opportunities for us to grow. During this intense period of economic transformation, I'm not willing to leave any stone unturned that may give us an advantage for the road ahead. Join me as I chat with thought leaders, innovators, and the movers and shakers of the world to learn their perceptions of our amazing city from beyond the echo. All right, well, we're letting you letting you join us on a good old-fashioned chat with my friend, Mr. Chris Black. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well, Tyler. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. You and I have known each other for quite a few years, and through COVID, I think we we did the like touch base in the early days, and we probably haven't chatted in the next six or last six or seven months. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. This is one of our new themes we uh, that we've that we've coined beyond the echo, and it really came from the simple fact that I've been talking to. I'm almost at a hundred. Uh, conversations I've had in the last year, but a lot of them were with, with people from Calgary. So I, I realized I was getting inside a little bit of an echo chamber. And when I was thinking about guests to have on the show, you bring a really interesting experience. You're Calgary, born and bred Calgarian, a lot of time in Calgary, which we'll talk about. But in the last few years, you've been working with an organization that is global. And I know that you are a bit of a of a, of a traveling machine. Maybe COVID has slowed that down, but uh, getting a perspective of being in Calgary as long as you have, and then being able to look in from the outside now that you've got such a broader global preview, I'm really, really interested to talk about it. So let's maybe start with your current gig at uh, Jolera. What do you do over there? Kind of what what are they all? Let's give it a blatant plug as well. What are they all about? And we'll pick it up. <laughs> No, thank you very much. Hey, listen, it's sad that we have to leave it to uh, to a podcast to, to reconnect. We need to do a better job there. But uh, absolutely, current gig at Jolera, you know, it's it's uh, two years in, and um, I'm the chief revenue officer, so I'm responsible for global sales, marketing, and customer success. Um, you know, my role was to come in and, and take a business that has grown organically and, and very, very quickly and, and start bringing some rigor, some process, some policy um, and keep well keeping that sense of urgency and that hustle that, that has kind of um, made Jolera successful. Uh, you know, I, I haven't cut down on the travel all that much. I'm sitting and talking to you from Toronto right now and I've been doing my monthly trips to Toronto since May. So, um, you know, our CEO moved to Portugal full time three weeks ago. So we're, we're continuing to, to do what we've always done. Jolera as a business is a, is a global IT solutions provider, but we sell to the channel. We like to refer to ourselves as the MSP for MSPs. So everybody okay. knows their, their local IT company. I used to work for one that you know quite well through I our yep. affiliation with Mr. Douglas Gray. Um, you know, organizations like Graycon or other IT resellers that sell directly to end customers resell our solutions. So we manufacture service solutions, things like our 24-7 global help desk, network operations center, a plethora of security solutions. We develop really mature, really effective, really efficient high margin solutions so that we can cut the lead time on innovation for partners, uh, allow them to make higher margins and, and have a hell of a lot less risk in their business on a day-to-day basis. And it, it seems to be resoundingly successful so far. Interesting. So no different than a company like 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 a Graycon, we'll use that as a as a common ground example, would have a partnership with Microsoft and resell some of their services. They would also have Jolera on the shelf, quote unquote, and then resell their services, being the ones that so there's a layer between you and the actual final customer, or in that relationship, do you work directly with the user of the service? 
It really depends. Uh, I mean, the, the constructs are always different. We rely on most of our partners and not all partnerships are created equal, but most of our partners handle the account management and the customer success component of the business. Okay. Um, we're there to augment or fulfill a specific role. Um, you know, if you're, you resell our service desk uh, and you white label it as your service desk, um, that customer will be talking to our service desk agents, but they think that they're talking to their IT solution provider. Okay. We are completely invisible in the background. We can also do co-branding where the customer knows that they're dealing with Jolera. And, and I think these are the, the really intelligent, nuanced partners that are a little bit further ahead. Um, they're looking at it as, you're just part of my stack. My job for my customer is to choose the right stack to be able to service them and to layer my people in front of it so that we control your customer experience. And those ones are the partners that are just growing by leaps and bounds because it's a very sophisticated approach to the market. Well, versus that, the, the, the front line or that, like you said, customer success IT provider trying to elude that they are the master of all, which in reality, we know within the world of complexity that we live in, you can't be the, oh, we've got everything in-house, we've got it all perfect. It's, it's, I would argue it's not even possible for most, especially at mid-tier in a smaller market like Calgary, I'm using this as an example. I agree. So, for yourself, going from working frontline with customers directly, obviously now you're, you're, you've got a blend of both. But what I'm really curious about is your view from being very Calgary-centric business. You know, Obviously, I know Graycon expanded and you're working with Rico, so you've expanded outside, but you've got a global perspective right now. So part of the show is really being able to take and talk to individuals who have a deep connection and understand the Calgary market, but have now through circumstance or just through roles like yourself are now looking at the world going, oh, okay, this is a little bit different over here or wow, Calgary's maybe holding themselves back or wow, Calgary's really ahead in this area. So from that perspective, when you first started traveling overseas and doing, you know, speaking more with an international customer group, what are some of the first things that stood out from you a little bit different than dealing with Calgary-based companies? Uh, You know what I would say? I would say that there's a lot of Calgary missing in the world. And it's going to sound weird, but I, I don't think, I think we're too modest as Calgarians. I don't think we fully embrace how much we have to offer. Um, the unique business environment that Calgary created um, from the handshake type philosophy of doing business, that high level of integrity, the sense of urgency and the hustle, we bring something to the game that is quite unique. And it, it sort of sat in that, that silo of Calgary for so long. And what I worried about when I took this job is, would I be able to be relevant and valuable and, and have the work ethic and integrity and all that to deal with Europeans who we, te- we tend to put on a high pedestal or, or the, the hustle and the energy to deal with Americans who, you know, they're, they're all about competition. And, and what I found is people absolutely love the Calgary way of doing things. They love the, the perspective. They love the focus that, you know, we're, we're much more of an, international city than we tend to think, but there's always that mindset. And I've, I've, I've had this conversation with, with my wife and with friends many times as, as we've looked at the economy in Calgary, we're going to have to leave to be successful. And I'm proof positive that you don't have to leave anything to be successful. The quality of life, living near the mountains, being at home with your friends and family, you can be international. And, and COVID has helped take the world years ahead. And people, people always ask the, the question I get all the time, oh, how has COVID affected you? Uh, COVID really didn't affect me because I started working remotely two years ago uh, where I was based in Calgary with teams all over the world. Uh, Video calls were a standard part of my life. So when COVID happened, I kept doing the same thing. The only difference is my wife kicked me out of my office and I had to work out of the basement. 
That was the only real difference to me. <laughs> you, got, you, you got evicted in a, way, in a sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's such a big nut to crack when you ask that question. But, I, I, you know, I really did worry. You, we, we, tend to, we tend to not, and I think it might be a Canadian thing, but we tend to not have the confidence that we're as worldly or as well-traveled or as relevant as we really are. And I, I think in the Calgary business environment, because of the, the high levels of technology, because of the, the rampant nature of the business, because of the boom and bust cycle, mm-hmm. we are so utterly prepared to have almost any conversation in a, an amenable, um, you know, politically correct, conscious way. And it's so rare for people to, to be able to get that. So when they see you, like, I, I think I was a month into Jolera and we went to a conference in Munich. And it, this is... Um, a critical software conference. They're talking about uh, industrial security. And our CEO was supposed to speak at the conference and he wanted to run through some role playing. He wanted to prep for it. And he sat there and, and we're going through and I'd, I'd seen the deck and I helped him build the deck. And, and he's like, okay, how would you present it? I presented it back to him. He's like, you're presenting tomorrow. His name's on the, on the queue, his name's on everything. But he's like, you're presenting tomorrow. I'm like, why, why am I presenting tomorrow? He goes, you just come across so earnest and knowledgeable and and I, I think it's the Calgary, man. I, 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 and I'm not trying to pump the tires on Calgary, but I, I, growing up in that business environment, I don't feel like I'm exceptional. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm one of many that I've dealt with of smart, intelligent, highly capable people that hustle. And, and it's sort of the Calgary business mindset. And when you, you get out of Calgary and you take it there, people really respond to it. It's so interesting. The thing, the, the the humility which makes you approachable also makes you inherently, and, you, and this is the umpteen times this has come up on the show, like we don't tell our story well enough. We're a bit too modest. We're too humble. We kind of put our head down and, you know, uh, shock scholar, gee, you know, if you think I'm good enough, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll do it. And I think it's a bit Canadian, but yeah, definitely Western Canada has a level of humility that leads to approachability, which is kind of the end payoff of what you're talking about. That yeah. people, you know, that approachability and the ability to actually have are re- like real conversations, no matter what the context, good, bad, or ugly. We've had all of them in Calgary in the last five years. <laughs> plus, yeah. plus, plus, plus. I'm just picking up that chain. Well, hey, when you when you think about obviously you've been in, you've you've done business in Calgary for a long time. You've seen boom and bust cycles. The last five years obviously has been challenging to Calgary on quite a few levels, specifically the resource sector. We've got you know everyone talks about the new tech ecosystem, and which sometimes feels like there's a lot of movement, but also feels we're on a fifteen or twenty year cycle. Like those kind of yeah. things don't change the critical mass of the employment and some of the dynamics of our downtown space. When you're traveling abroad and working with companies globally, uh, I guess in other areas of, of of the world, I guess, what are you seeing from an economic transformation perspective? Like, there's no question, Calgary, we're deep in it right now. Mm-hmm. Other parts of the world, we're not the first ones to go through it. I guess any any observations or things you can see from jurisdictions that are maybe going through some challenges and responding to it differently than we are, or maybe are just a couple cycles ahead of us that we can bring back and use as an insight? Yeah, I, I would say it's kind of all over the map. It, it really depends. You know, when you, you go to Europe, um, and, and again, I'm not the expert in, in European business. I've had the crash course over the last two years, and I continue to learn every day. But uh, when you go to Europe, it, it, it's all about validation and, and proving what you say. Like, you, you can have the best marketing message in the world, but you have to prove it. I, like, we talk about references. They reference everything. Give me a reference in my industry that you've done this for, and I want to talk to them. And you're not at the table. I'm going to talk to them. They're going to make the phone call. Um, you have to be able to back up your bullshit. 
you absolutely have to. And uh, the European, you know, it's very, very cut and dry. It's very straightforward. There's a lot of integrity and honesty. Uh, they tend to move a little bit slower. How are they dealing? I think they've been dealing with economic uncertainty and change for longer than we have. I mean, if you look at the formation of the European Union and figuring out, you know, currency changes and, and how to monetize yourself and compete in a world where, you know, you have no competitive advantage other than what your business brings to the table over the Czech Republic that has resources that are at 20% of your cost, um, at, that are highly intelligent, highly capable, they've gotten past the language barrier. Uh, so I, I think for them, they look at focus. The European businesses are focused. You don't get a lot of these generalist shots that say, we're going to do these 10 things. No, we're, we're the boutique for this one thing. And we're going to be really, really good at it. Astoundingly good at it. That's where we're going to build our message. That's where we're going to build our... And if we're going to add a second thing, we build that second thing as good as the first or we don't bother doing it. So it's a highly focused business culture there. Um, you know, they're, they're willing to take risks, but they're very educated, very specific risks because you, you just don't see the generalization there that you see here. And is it a combination of things? Obviously, I appreciate, you know, like your neighbor who's literally like a two hour drive away has resources at 30% on the dollar compared to what your resources cost you just because of where you happen to be and the and the infrastructure that you're in. Also, is it also, there's also, I would assume, I'm making my own thoughts here, that there's just a critical mass that, you know, I always joke, you can open a restaurant in New York City that just serves craft dinner and the 0.001% of the population that loves you is enough to stay in business. Yep. When you open that craft dinner restaurant in Calgary, those 50 people are going to be super excited. Yep. But after the first month, it's probably going to fall off. You don't, are you not able to sustain such a niche focus, which pushes us to these generalized, like, oh, sure, of course. Yeah. And I know I'm guilty of it. Yeah. You know, my business partner said years ago, because Tyler, this year we're going to be defined more by what we say no to. Because as an entrepreneur, you say yes all the time, yeah. especially as more of a generalist approach of, you know, eat what you kill kind of thing. <laughs> but we, we, we're also, you know, you notice it in Europe. And I actually, I posted this on LinkedIn soon after I got back from my first trip to visit our Portuguese team. Their, their pace that they operate at, they're, they're still efficient, they're still effective, there's still a sense of urgency, but they're not running at, the, at full mm -hmm. speed. They're not, they're not going balls to the wall every single day. They're, they're being conscientious of people, the process. Um, you know, we, we're starting to talk about shop local. You and I were talking about this during at the onset of COVID. Yep. How, do we, how do we help people shop local? That is a European mindset that's been there for, for as long as I can tell. Um, they buy local, they support local, it matters to them because those are their neighbors and, and there's a high level of sensitivity to that. You know, they, they want that bakery to succeed because they know the baker's wife and, and they want a local bakery. They don't want it coming, being imported from another country just because the buns are a dollar cheaper. They don't care about that. They'll spend the extra dollar to support their community because they see the attachment. We live in such a, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, so there's no holier than thou statement here, but... We live in a fast food, instant gratification, um, thrill-based reality TV junkie culture right now. <laughs> and and it's, it, when you go to Europe, it puts it into perspective. And I know you've spent a lot of time in Europe too. But when you go there, and not just on vacation where you're, you're bouncing from hotels, you're having a few cocktails, and you're going skiing. But when you, you sit in a business environment, you're, you can see that their people come first. Pure, like that, that we have a problem with our team. And then we have a problem with our customers. And then let's start talking about prospecting business development. You, you have to go through those paces because if you don't, you come across as that fast food, high paced, doesn't give a shit, anything for results, 
North American. And, and I honestly, and, and I, I guess it's more of that, that Western, it's like that a little bit in England too, but we we're operating without, again, I'm trying not to make grandiose holier than thou statements, but we, we tend to be operating without values. We like to talk about the values, but we don't like to live the values. You know, we like to talk about buying local, and then we shop off Amazon something that's being shipped. Yes, 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 we do. Yeah. It, you know, we, we're, we're big talkers in North America. And, and when you're in Europe, you notice, and, and it's a little like this in Montreal too. And I know like you're from the area. So hopefully I'm, I'm not, you know, speaking out of the side of my hat here, but I, they, they care about local. They care about people. They care about the values. And if you don't demonstrate that you're a part of that with your actions and not just your words, you're, you're irrelevant to them. Oh, you might as well not even exist. No, hundred yeah. percent. Right to the fact of like, oh, you don't have an office here. You don't have people on your team mm-hmm. that actually were native to here. We're not yeah. interested in doing business with you. Like yeah. they, they shut that down immediately. Yeah. You know, which is interesting is that part of what I loved about Western Canada was there was an openness and inclusive. And I did believe, you know, I still believe this, that there was a point where, well, there, there was a sense of abundance for one that's created a different level, you know, where I think even back East Montreal, there's a little bit more scarcity. There's a little bit more nepotism. There's a little bit more, it's hard to break into a new group because you're an outsider. Where in Alberta, I found that there was incredibly an openness to that. And, but there was also a lot of success when you take away the success, how does that change it? So if you look back to Calgary and some of the business you've dealt with here over the years versus what you've seen, which what I understand and listen to you is working well in Europe and just, it's a different, it's a different mindset i guess what can we take back or what can we learn or where where do you think companies in calgary during this economic transformation like where are we making some wrong moves or what could we do differently how yeah the positive or the negative however we want to frame it i i I think it comes back to to you know building that sense of honor and integrity and living within the values and showing it and demonstrating it on a day-to-day basis when i think back to to graycon and what we did right at graycon and and this this came straight from doug it is, here are the values of the business. These are the things, if we're going to make mistakes, we're going to make mistakes on doing too much of the, the right thing for our people and for our customers. Um, and we, we lost a lot of deals. We lost a lot of business. Um, we, we precluded ourselves from different um, clients and engagements because we had that high sense of values. But I will say, on the flip side of that, we kept customers and had customer sentiment that was through the roof, the customer experience, even when we delivered a crappy service at times, the customer would be like, that's okay. I know you guys will work to do better because we live within those values. And I, I think as, as the money has drained out, the first thing that goes are the, the extras. And it's not the pop in the kitchen, it's not those things, it's you start to cut corners. You, you don't do those little things for your customers anymore. You, that decision you would have made where um, you know, you're going to let, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the customer and just do the right thing. All of a sudden you're not doing that. And you're sending a contentious bill because you want to get that revenue in the till because there is scarcity within your books and you're trying to keep cash. Yep. Like there's reasons for it, but it's a self defeating short term mindset. And I think you, you have to play the long game. And even in Calgary where I, I, and listen, I know a lot of people, a lot of business leaders, a lot of people that are out of work, it's a scary environment, but those companies that are playing the long game, you, you look at a mutual friend of ours, Iggy Domogolski over at Tundra, mm-hmm. they're playing the long game. They never stop playing the long game and they're seeing serious success. They're growing through the most difficult time in Alberta's economy, both COVID and the recession from the energy. Um, and they continue to grow. They continue to diversify. They, they barely lose staff. They bring on new customers. 
they're highlighted all over because they're playing the long game. So what can we learn from Europe and what can we learn from companies like Tundra? It's that if you play the long game, you continue to do it right, and you, you don't try and you know, fast track winning, um, and, and you don't, don't let that sense of entitlement or, or greed or fear take over what, what your, your genuine um, decision making would typically be, you'll win. And, and if you don't, you'll lose the right way, and that's okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm defined by my, you're defined by your losses. The wins, the, the giant wins that my team makes today, um, that those aren't gonna help us be better. When we fall flat on our face and we fail, <laughs> we get better. We learn from it because it, it fucking hurts and it sucks. Um, and you look, you look back and you, you reverse engineer how you don't fail again. Um, and, and you make changes. So I, I think in Calgary, we need to get back to playing the long game. We need to live within our Western values. We need to, to stop trying to be really cool and quick and, and you know, bringing on these components of, of faster, harder, better. Like, it's not a badge of honor that you work 20 hours a day and never take a vacation. What that is, is, is it's actually an indicative of you having the wrong mindset. You're going to burn yourself out and the people around you, you're going to burn out too. So take your vacation, work a reasonable amount of hours, hustle when you have to, but live within the values, play the long game. And I think you can win. I really appreciate that because it's so easy and I know, hey, I'm guilty of it as much as the next the next person can be of the, you know, if I work harder, work harder, it'll be better. Like that you get into this triage slash survival mode that I think a lot of companies are in, but you've used some really good examples. You know, Iggy's a great example of, and I talked to him, they're always bigger picture. They're always people first. Like they're very values driven organization and it comes out as soon as you chat with them. It's a, it's a great example. And there's other companies like that. You know, unfortunately, the alternatives are the ones you hear about and the dramatic fails and the, you know, we are going through a structural change in the resource sector. And it was a lot of success for even back in 08, 09. It was, it was a little bit of a blip for us. And I don't certainly remember it even close to what the last four to five years has been. But you said a lot of things that we have going for us, the positive, like it is an absolutely fantastic place to live from a quality of life, the accessibility, like it's a, it's a great city that has had it kind of good for a long time. And like I joke, I'm too young to say, remember the good old days, but you know, <laughs> there was a certain extent where it was, it just, there was literally money flowing down the street. You could stick your toe in it and it would work. That's not really the world we live in now, but it doesn't mean there isn't opportunities. But if you reflect upon it and, and there'll be a lot of people in Calgary who won't like to hear this, but if they sit back and they're, they're honest with themselves, they'll know it's true. That being, having so much wealth concentrated in an area, having it be so easy, um, it created so many bad habits and behaviors, not just for individuals, but for organizations. And listen, I have been to hundreds of stampede parties that I absolutely love and I have many fond memories, but was that the best use of, of cash and capital for those organizations? Did it have the return on investment that they anticipated or was it just debauchery for the sake of debauchery? Um, you know, I might I, go with I might go with choice number two on your on your, if that's an a, if that's an A B multiple choice question. I think B is is often more the case. Yeah, absolutely. I would walk into organizations, Tyler, and we we would go in there and we would do assessments, IT assessments, and you know they would have pieces of software that are costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and then they have another piece of software that does the exact same thing, costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You see twenty people using the one piece of software and two people using the other one, and you go back to them and you're like. You want cost savings? Here you go. It's right here. Well, no, Joe and Jim really like that software, and we don't want to ruffle any feathers. Really? You'd walk down that same hallway, and every single executive had an EA. Um, some, some of them had two. Like, it just, 
we, we built a, a culture and, and actually dealing in Toronto has, has helped me with this perspective a lot. In, in Toronto and, and out west, and I admit, I'm the first one to admit, you, you have a western bias. Um, you think, oh, it's the big smoke. Toronto, and people in the west still hate when I talk positive about Toronto. They, they hate it. They despise it. They think I'm some turncoat and that I've, I've abandoned the western mentality where we have to hate people from Toronto. But um, in, in, in Toronto, you have an EA if you need an EA. If your schedule and, and busyness dictates that you need it, you get it. And that, that tends to be how that environment permeates. If there's a rhyme and a reason it happens, and there's probably companies that operate here that I don't know about that, that fit more of the Western model of, of waste and, and expenditure, but they tend to be very pragmatic here. And it, it's, you know, when you put a statement of work, I remember putting hundreds of thousands of dollars of statement of work in front of people in Calgary. The CFO wouldn't even read it. They'd go to the back page and they'd just sign it. I trust you. Well, I'm glad you trust me. That's a good thing, but you have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that what I just put on the table is exactly what your company needs. And, and you're just, ah, nah, you know, if you say it's what I need, it's good. You, that, you can't tell me that for years and years that wasn't exploited in the West. That does not happen in Toronto. And that doesn't happen here because the, the buck stops with every decision that you need to make. You have to prove the value of what you're going to do. If you say you're going to deliver an outcome, that outcome has to be there or they're not going to pay you for the service that was was engendered. And I, I think that's Calgary still adjusting to that reality a little bit. And, you know, it was actually at Rico where I started to learn that because I started operating in Toronto more. And, you know, our, our whimsical, sloppy statements of work never got signed in Toronto. We couldn't figure it out because they didn't have the depth and detail and integrity of information required to drive a decision. And, and I think Calgary needs to, we have to get away from, to, and I, I just said, live in your values, play the long game. You know, it's part of the handshake culture makes it good. That handshake culture also um, opens up a lot of room for error, failure, and, and a lack of execution. And let this be it does, and when and the margins are high and things are loose, it, it moves forward. We, you know, we've had an office in Toronto for years, and it fundamentally is a different way of doing business. It's funny; it doesn't move as quick in some ways, which I love that part of Western Canada because you get that entrepreneurial little bit of the high, which is like you said, it's not always good, but it can be fun. It can be fun to ride the ride, but the level of diligence and the the proof of the ability to create value before you ever get the deal signed is so much more prevalent in other parts of the country than it is in Western Canada. It's much more like, well, I trust you, and you know so and so, and they trust you. So we're good. Yep. And that's a great way to get in the door, but it's not an excuse not to still do your due diligence. Yep. Uh, that's, that is one of the, you know, from it, from the server at the restaurant in Calgary, now having to try a little bit harder where, you know, I'd go to restaurants in Toronto or Montreal. I grew up in the service business, put myself through school doing that. Yep. And I come here and I'm like, well, you, wow, this laxity, like there's so many at the, at the most rudimentary yep. level. Like you can just ladder that same experience all the way up to, mm-hmm. to closing a deal. Yep. Um, Getting into a little bit, obviously, I would assume you guys deal with like, what would be a typical size? Like, do you guys deal with more startups? I would doubt it. Or is it more mid to larger enterprise all, size? All across the board. Yeah, we, okay. we deal all across up the board. Up and down the chain? Up, up and down the entire week. You know, there's no specific vertical orientation or, or segmentation. We go, we'll deal with anybody. And, and the startups can be as fun or as difficult as the major enterprises. Um, but <laughs> we, they all have challenges. All. It's just what flavor, right? Yeah. Yeah, we get to see all of them. So curious of your perspective, and this is more of a disappointing question, maybe maybe delving into an area, but um, when you look at 
regionally government related, whether it's provincial or municipal versus other parts of the world. I guess, what do you see in Calgary from a, you know, what role does the government, should the government be playing? Is there anywhere the government should get the hell out of the way? You know, curious working through all kinds of different jurisdictions, you know, like, like you use Quebec as an example, the government tends to be more involved in things in Quebec than they are in Western Canada. And you see places where it's not been a strength. You see in places of the evolution of AI, which was heavily backed by the government in Quebec, which has really put Montreal on the map. So I'm, you know, I'm of two sides. Like there's the, the non-conformist, non-union, we're going to go it on our own kind of mindset that I have. But then I see examples where the government has got involved in the right lane for them and it's really moved economies forward. It's curious to your perspective of what you see out there around the world versus what you see back here at home and maybe what, what your recommender thoughts would be on the right right balance. I, you know, it's, it's really interesting and I, I don't have data to back this up, but I'll bet you you can find it pretty quickly. I think where, where governments are involved, not controlling but where they're involved in the process, where they're sitting there facilitating and understanding, they're involved in the business community, they're getting the voice of the business community, and they're, they're helping to drive change through intelligent funding, through appropriate engagement, through the right policies. Uh, I think those jurisdictions are winning. You, you talk about Montreal, you, you can't even recognize Montreal from 10 years ago to now. Going to Griffintown now, and Griffintown is a, it is a zesty, fun, small business, entrepreneurial, like it, it, there's an energy there that you, you're not going to find almost anywhere else. In Toronto, like you, the startup culture here is absolutely insane. Around every corner is a new startup with people with new ideas that are coming out of university or, or leaving established businesses. And we're going to take a shot at this because we found a niche in the marketplace. And the government in, in these jurisdictions, they're and there's with any information, somebody can go and find 10 examples where I'm wrong here, but I think <laughs> these, these governments have really taken the time to listen to the business community and engage with them and, and challenge how do we together think outside of the box and put policy um, and dollars in place to help those outside of the box risk-taking challenges come to life. Uh, and I think in Alberta, we have a bunch of talking heads. And, and I think we've had that since Ralph Klein and that I'm a born and raised Albertan. So I'm allowed to say this. And, and yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are fully in your, fully in your right, sir. <laughs> and since Peter Lougheed, we haven't had anybody who's had a vision bigger than, you know, we, I was talking to somebody about it yesterday. It pisses me off as an Albertan and as a Calgarian that the heritage fund isn't what that Norwegian heritage fund is. We had every potential to build a, a sustainable fund to drive the future of Alberta so that we weren't on our knees begging for dollars from Ottawa from a government that has zero interest in supporting what they see as a dirty industry, um, especially, in, and this is part of, again, a perspective that a lot of Albertans don't get because we tend to be insular and we don't like the East and we don't want to talk to people. But when, when you come out here, the reason the federal government and people from the East don't want to support Alberta is because they keep, they, they saw for years when, when we got to enjoy those boom cycles. They got to hear about those crazy stampede parties. They got to hear about the Boxing Day sale where people were taking, you know, 40 shirts out of, out of Harry Rosen. They were buying ridiculous houses, ridiculous cars, opening up all these crazy dealerships. People were paying attention to that. Um, you know, it, it, it was sort of our hidden little secret where oh, we're all wealthy, we're making a lot of money, and this is great. Um, that whole Discover the New West campaign, People discovered the New West and they saw the amount of money and the amount of wastage that was going on. Well, in Ontario and in other places, they were trying to figure out what their new normal was going to look like. 
So now when they've figured it out and they've, they've sat down with business, invested intelligently time and, and dollars, and they've been able to build broader, more diversified economies out here, they're looking at Alberta and they're saying, you played your one instrument for a long time and rubbed it in everybody's face. And now you're going to have to pay the piper. And, and as an Albertan, I don't like that message either. And I don't think it's necessarily right. I think part of the, the beauty of Canada and what makes us strong as a country is that we help each other and we should celebrate diversity. And, and you know, when we make mistakes, as, as I think Alberta has made, um, we're going to help our brothers and sisters, you know, stand back up. But um, it, I think government is, Jason Kenney's a great example. The guy has no integrity, has no charisma. Um, he, he gets on TV and he, he, he's just a talking head. You know, give us money, it's our turn. He, and he's trying to, to, to drive the emotional elements of Albertans and get you fired up. Um, and he's hoping that he can get reelected because he's, he's tapped into this emotion where we've been wronged and everybody's always taking advantage of us. And we've got to take a, some accountability in this look in the mirror. We didn't invest in our own futures. No, the feel sorry for us. And it's you. Yeah, no, that gets really old. It's interesting to hear you've, I've, I've certainly not run into the same degree of like <laughs> the secretly wanting to see, you know, you, you see your successful neighbor who's got the new cars and the boats and like living, living large. And all of a sudden he loses it. There's that little bit of like, oh, well, yeah, well, see, told you so kind of thing. I've always encountered more of just a general apathy of like, yeah, Alberta, whatever. Yeah. Oil, who cares? Like we don't care. It's certainly more of an apathy versus, versus a, a, a disdain, but you're right. Playing this angle of feel sorry for us and, you know, poor us. Unfortunately, I don't think that's, I think it's having the exact opposite effect. I do, I do completely agree with you on it on a national scale and globally, you know, I've been talking to some people on beyond the echo down in the valley and just outside of it and i guess we would be fortunate if they were even thinking poor of us they're not thinking about us at all <laughs> like we're not even on the radar well i, I think there's a number of, of challenges there too like the, there's an energy literacy problem um that exists out there where the, you mm -hmm. know there's a, a fundamental lack of understanding of, of what the alberta oil industry is uh, the environmental impact and the environmental stewardship that's been taken. Uh, I think, you know, our, our energy industry gets painted with a, a very, very ugly color and it's done some amazing things to, to help, you know, the energy industry worldwide, um, take environmental steps forward and, and do things differently. And, uh, could it be better? Yeah, it could always be better, but go, go take a, a drive through, um, Sudbury and tell me about uh, the environment. Go, uh, go, go see how the, the water in the Great Lakes are um, from some of the, the industry and operations that happen there. Go through BC where the pulp mills are and, and talk to me about environmental stewardship. I mean, at least Alberta had a plan on how we were going to extract energy and then clean it up afterwards. Um, most of these other jurisdictions don't even have a plan, but we're such a big target. And because we have been that you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use the term. We've been the guy with the boat and that the fancy outfit. Yeah, you know, loud and, 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 and brash. Um, I think they're quietly enjoying it. And there is a level of apathy, but there's also, you, you want to see that, yep. that neighbor that you don't like who was always having a loud parties. You don't mind seeing his, his boat get repossessed. 
I think that we can stop right there. And I think that's unfortunately sums it up quite nicely. It's the highest boat ownership per capita, but yet the lowest amount of accessible lakes in all of Canada and Alberta. But yeah, somewhere there's something broken in that in that kind of formula. I think the boat example is a really strong one. <laughs> you get back to oil and gas, we've lost control of the narrative and we just quietly did our own thing. Even when we were doing good things, we didn't really talk about it. Back to the, the need to tell a story and present a narrative to the world. And if you leave a void, someone else will fill it. And then when you come back, say, no, no, that's incorrect. Now you just look like you're being defensive. Yeah. Like it is a, it is a, it's a lot harder to come back against a negative mm-hmm. message than it is to lead. And, you know, I had a friend of mine who was the COO over at uh, Canadian Energy Pipeline Association. He did say, and he goes, Tyler, when your opponents aren't hamstrung by science or the truth, he goes, you're kind of screwed before you get out of the gate, which again, immediately, I don't disagree with him in the context, but it still sounds like a poor me. And, That's you know, immediately it doesn't garner much sympathy from people outside our jurisdiction, for sure. That's a cop out because we didn't, we didn't start using that language or wanting to inform people until it was too late. So now that it's too late, we have this wonderful excuse of, well, you know, science and, and information are on our side, but nobody wants to listen. Why weren't we talking to get ahead of it? And you, you said it exactly right. It's so hard to catch up. When you fall behind, it's so hard to catch up. And when you have a global movement that's happening around the environment, rightfully so, um, I, I still question, you know, overall, I, I was having this debate actually with a business partner of ours that operates in France. And he was saying, well, your, your consumption per capita is X, your carbon consumption. Those statistics, if you look into them, are so full of shit. Um, you know, you would come back and it's like, okay, because here's our industrial output. No, no, no. The average person, you, I've been to France. You're telling me the average person in Canada consumes that much more? Okay, we have bigger vehicles. We have more geography to cover. Like there's, there's if this, then that statements that need to be made. But we, we live in a world where, as Donald Trump has proven, um, little tidbits of information go a long way. And, um, and unfortunately, the energy industry fell way behind. And, and they're probably never going to be able to catch up. So as opposed to, to trying to catch up, control the narrative that you can now, um, continue to do the good things you're doing, spend uh, judiciously and, and you know, hope that, that the federal government doesn't instill policy and programs that hurt you more. They're not going to give you a cash handout um, as Suncor and, uh, and Suncor's recent layoffs following, uh, you know, a pretty substantial package from the Alberta government has shown nobody's going to give you handouts, but I think if you control, you and I've talked about controlling the narrative before, and this is, you know, we talked about it under the context of marketing, but if, if we as Albertans can control our own narrative, like if we want to have a startup culture, the federal government isn't going to come in and create a startup culture. We're going to do that. We're going to do that by ensuring that there isn't a brain drain. We're not losing our, our intellectuals. We're not losing those entrepreneurial spirits and, and they're not leaving the country and they're doing things like I did. They're joining forces with people in different parts of the company to be innovative, to be different. And they're doing it that Calgary way with the hustle and the integrity and the values. Um, and COVID has allowed us to work remotely to drive that. Yes. So let's keep the smart well, people I, I, in Calgary. Looking at the positives of COVID, I'm, I'm with you on that. There's obviously been, you know, negative impacts, but the, the acceleration of, you know, arguably the, the next five years of what was going to be happening in terms of trends happened in five months. And I think that's amazing because the concept of value in Calgary as an oil and gas town, and I have a lot of friends that are wrestling with it right now, 
if they don't see you bum and seat, you're not providing value, but that's just not the world we live in anymore. So even that mindset of this culture of like, well, if you're not in the office, you're not adding any value to the organization. COVID's proved, I think literally in about 48 hours that that wasn't true. But yet I see a lot of companies struggling because they've got, maybe for the wrong reasons, we've got space, we've got a floor plan, we've got four or five floor plates that we need to fill up. So let's just do it because we have it, not because it's the most value creation possible. Those are the kind of learnings where, you know, if COVID, I think COVID forced us and pushed us, but there's a lot of companies that are f- struggling to go to you know the way it was, which my you the way it was is always an illusion, no matter what the context. Because it's you always romanticize. Even you know I talk to people like oh, I can't wait to get the back in the office. I'm like, well, wait, it's not going to be like it was in January. It'll be like it is now, which is social distancing. You can't be in the you know all the camaraderie and those things. Being forced to go through that is really, it's interesting to see some of the side effects in, I'm sure every city, I've got some more intimate uh, access to Calgary and the conversations that are happening and the angst that's between leadership and employees right now as everybody realizes that we can do it different, but we're choosing not to, you're getting some, you're getting some backlash, which I think is, is a good thing. I, I think it's a debate and, and discussion that needs to happen. I mean, I, I, I was on the flip side of our organization and our executive team. When COVID first happened, we enacted BCP very quickly. We were, a, we were an early adopter of getting people working from home. You know, we have a lot of people in our Toronto office and, and you know, that use public transportation. We knew that was going to be a problem. So we got ahead of it. Um, we learned some lessons. There's things we could have done differently. But by and large, we did a really good job. Our CEO, probably for six months, went in a downward spiral mentally. And I, I, I hope he doesn't mind me throwing this out there, but you know, he really struggled. He's the chief entertainment officer. Like his job was to go out there and evangelize yeah. our business, to wine, to dine, to engage, to, you know, and when he couldn't do that, he, he saw him not being able to do his job. And for 20 years, this business has been around for 20 years. He's seen butts and seat. He's been able to, to get a yep. sense of if people are working hard or not, um, and that's, that sort of allowed it to, to become a culture that was absent of the right measurement, the right inspection, and the right accountability. So what I started talking about right away, um, from my experience at, at Rico and working from, for a global organization and working remotely for them, was, was the concept of MIA. It all comes down to measurements, inspection, accountability. If we have the right measurements for each and every role, we inspect the information to make sure that it's accurate and it's not a bunch of bullshit and run stuff that's getting put down. And then there's accountability behind it. People clearly know what they're supposed to be doing and they're being held accountable to deliver that. And if they don't, there's consequences. You, it's amazing what happens. So every, every key indicator over six months improved. Everything, Tyler, everything improved. Our call answer times on our service desk improved. Our customer satisfaction ratings went through the roof because our people were genuinely happier, not everybody, but genuinely happier working from an environment where they didn't have to travel in on average into our Toronto office 40 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes, people travel in to come to our office in downtown Toronto. They don't have to do that. They're sleeping longer. They're eating better. They're, you know, they're scared of COVID for sure, but they were engaged. So when every discernible metric that we have, plus the managerial components of looking and inspecting that data and making sure there's integrity in it, and then holding people accountable and doing more training and coaching, mentoring, and in certain cases, making changes, with staff members that, that didn't want to be accountable, our business has never run better. But our CEO still sat there on our daily executive call and argued that we have to get back to work. Um, we're, you know, everybody's lazy, Every, everybody's doing this. And he wasn't saying it from a place of disparagement. He couldn't put his finger on what they were doing. 
and he had to really change his mindset. And that's part of why he went to Portugal. He had to get out of the negativity um, and he, he needed a reset. So he moved his entire family to Portugal. Uh, I appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, the, I love a good pattern interrupt, like whatever your thought patterns are, flip it upside down, moving across the world during a pandemic would definitely do that. (laughs) And, but his mindset, he is so engaged right now. He is such a different perspective. He's fully embraced. We had a town hall a couple weeks ago. He's fully embraced the working remotely. He's fully embraced the technology. Um, he's reading the reports. He's seeing the measurement. There's certain roles where we have found it's better for them to be in the office. So I'm in our Toronto office right now. And it's probably at 50% capacity. And the roles that are here are the okay. ones that need to be more collaborative. And it's the sort of collaboration that really only genuinely happens when you can look down from you and ask a quick question. You, you don't have to open up a chat window. You don't have to try and get somebody's attention. They're right there. But most of our people are working from, none of my teams are here. I have, I have one guy who came with me from Calgary here. Um, we're the only two people from my side of the organization in the office. And, and it's working. So... I, I, think I really appreciate what you said. In the old days, it was just, we just had everybody in and we kind of like back to, you know, measurement, input and accountability. You've got to really be on top of that when the accountability was just like, well, I see you at your desk. So you're there and that's my armchair, you know, checkbox, which really doesn't prove anything in terms of value, value creation. So I do appreciate the fact that it, 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 it opens up more opportunity, but again, it just, it like, not that this is a bad thing. It requires that level of diligence to really be clear what accountability is for the individual, for the organization, for the customer, for you as the leader. So many times people work in, in this vacuum of not really clear what they think they're accountable to and what other people they're accountable to are not even the same. And I find organizations or humans fail at that time and time again. <laughs> well, you know, right? You know what I'm holding you accountable to. Yeah, of course I do. Lost language. Nobody actually knows what anybody's talking about. Just nodding. Yes, absolutely. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. You're good. I'm good. Um, hey, question. I love the I love the MIA measure. In, uh, you know, inspect accountable. If you were going to throw, well, obviously, you're a business leader that looks around the world for opportunities. If you were to look back at Calgary, you know, six months from now, when you were going to make some major business decisions in your in your organization, to say, hey, you know, we better get ready because things are happening there. Calgary's moving in the quote unquote right direction for growth and opportunity. There's green shoots. What are the, some of the things that you would look at from the outside? as somebody addressing Calgary as a place that, hey, you know what? There's going to be more business here for us. Things are going to get busier in Calgary. I can see because these are my indicators. What would be on your dashboard? Tyler, the fastest, I, I got off our exec call before I hopped on this call. And we, uh, this is straight up. We're looking at Calgary in two different ways. One, there's a tremendous intellectual opportunity there for us to add really good, well-seasoned, you know, people that have those values, have that sense of urgency, understand the boom bust cycles. So we're looking at Calgary as a hub to hire. And, and our team has grown there from, uh, you know, 900% since I joined. And, and it's because there's really good people. I would also put out there that the fastest growing segment of our business is Alberta. It's the fastest segment okay, of our wow. business. Okay. Because our, our solution is around the two major priorities of business right now security and value for your dollar, that cost rationalization. We're, we can enable partners to walk into Calgary and talk to these energy companies and these existing businesses and these startup businesses and change the game for, for how IT was handled before. So we look for, in our business as Calgary is a, a dramatic area for us to be able, in, in fact, to the extent that if I wasn't as happy in this role as I am, I'd go start an IT company in Calgary right now. I think there's an amazing, amazing opportunity there that, that isn't being exploited well enough. Uh, you have a lot of companies that are, that are 
I don't want to say wasting money, but they're spending money in the wrong places with information technology. And through the right guidance, they can not just save money, but they can have a better impact on their business with employees that are be have better engagement, are have better tools working remotely, are more secure. Um, it, it's Calgary to me is a tremendous business opportunity. Tremendous. And is that still part of the hangover from the years of just signing scopes of work without really understanding or having multiple thoughts? Is like we're we still haven't worked our way. Even you think about the last five years, there's been cost cutting, and again, I want to be careful. There's a difference between strategic strategic decisions made in your business and just cutting costs sometimes. And as a marketer, sometimes like, well, we're cutting marketing. Well, what about the long-term? No, we don't even, that doesn't matter. We're just cutting it because you're a cost, you're a cost line item versus the long game companies or the, you know, finite versus infinite, depending on what words you want to use. That's interesting to hear you say that there's still a huge opportunity for like the underpinning of the value, you the value story. You covered it earlier. There is a nepotistic business environment within Calgary. And, and you keep doing the same thing over and over. So, okay, so you fired your IT guy or you fired your IT company and you went to this new IT guy or new IT company. They're playing from the same playbook. It's the exact same playbook. It's just more of the same. And this was, you know, for me, the reason why I came to Jolera, and this isn't a plug about Jolera, but this is a plug about disruptive companies that are going to be able to take advantage of situations no matter what the economic outlook looks like. Disruptive organizations come in and have a completely different playbook and they go against the grain. So for us, we look at it as an opportunity because I know the exact playbook people are playing by there and I know exactly how to counter that playbook. I've seen it, I helped write it, I know it very well, and now I'm countering it. <laughs> you, you got a pretty good cheat sheet, my friend, I would say. Yeah, I'm countering it. So if, if you can, and these are the businesses to me, when I talk to, to friends and, and different leaders out there that are winning, they're disrupting, they're looking at how can we add, who is the customer and how can we add value? How do we do this different? How do we give them a different output? And you see it with, I think, I think you've had Michelle Berg on, on your show as well. I have had Michelle, um, yep. You look at what she's doing in HR and in the consultancy business that she's running. You know, and people are like, oh yeah, Michelle's in recruiting. Michelle's doing the farthest thing from recruiting maybe right. in there, but the way she's going about helping companies attain their objective is completely different than the standard recruiting companies who are sitting there floating you resumes and expecting 20%. Michelle has bucked the trend. She's being disruptive. Companies like that are going to find a tremendous opportunity in Calgary because of that nepotistic, do the same thing, same playbook environment. So I, I think marketing companies, I, you, you know that. So I, I've always referred to myself since I took over marketing at Graycon as a voyeur in marketing. I love marketing. Marketing is cool. It's creative. It's fun. And I think the companies that are taking a different playbook to go in and show how organizations can utilize marketing to drive their business, not just from a, you know, adding more revenue into the till, but finding better talent, building better recognition in the environment. You know, I, I think there's a huge opportunity in Calgary for that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count Calgary out. It's not going to disappear. It's going to go through a reset. Um, it's going to have to rediscover itself. It may look very, very different 10 years from now, but there's a tremendous amount of talent and business to do there if you're willing to disrupt the, the status quo. Well, willing to disrupt or willing to be disrupted. You know, yeah. I've had lots of conversations, I'm sure you've had too, where it's like, oh, we want to do things totally differently. Then you give them totally differently and it's like, oh, that's scary. Yeah. But I think because we've been in this cycle for as long as we have, it's, it's a little bit less about 
whether they choose to disrupt or not, they've been disrupted. So now there's, I think the appetite every day I'm, I'm in conversations where it's like, yeah, we've never done that. Or, you know, just the simple basics of like our website has never really been part of our sales strategy in the last six months, their websites is specifically in B2B service sector or product sector in Alberta. We've had more phone calls with like, yeah, that website that the CEO son made a few years ago, it's not cutting it anymore that we now, you know, aren't doing global trade. Anyway, it's funny, but it's a real conversation. It's salesperson. It is I, yes. one sales I'm preaching to the choir, my friend. On you, I know. I know. I don't have to sell you on this on this concept. And but, it, uh, it blows you know. me away. I, I I don't know. I I like <laughs> that. I, I like where you went there with the the be, people have to be willing to be disrupted, but it it's time. Like it is time. If you if you expect a different result from doing the same thing, you're going to be woefully disappointed, and eventually you're going to run out of time to figure it out. Because that the investment well, eventually the market the market will decide yeah. on your behalf right yeah. and nobody wants to be in that situation Absolutely. but uh, you know like, humans are incredibly good at being complacent yeah. but we're also incredibly good at it being ad- adaptable often when we're given no choice you know the mother of all necessity the mother of all invention we're in a place of that right now so I appreciate you know someone like yourself who's born and bred grew up in Calgary you know wrote wrote some of the pages in, in the in the playbook that we have certainly from the industry that you work in but now you know moving abroad and seeing what what really is still a strong value proposition in terms of how we do business and the type of people we are, but then the need to disrupt and look at things differently and the the specialization, the ability to, to add value, to be accountable, to be able to back up. It's not like, it's not just the handshake. They are going to, I'm always shocked how many people don't check our references as a company. I'm like, don't take my word for it. Here's a bunch of happy clients. Oh no, we're good. We don't need to call them. So to hear you talk about the fact that globally they make those phone calls, yeah. I think they should, they, they behooves them to make those phone calls. Calgary, we're still Still a little bit in the handshake deal range, but I think we're slowly moving there as the dollars become more important. Like every penny does matter now. And I think that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Well, it, it comes down to that. I, I think you can apply this to, to how businesses are run, that, that measurement, inspection, and, and accountability. Yeah. When we make business decisions, we should be doing the exact same thing. We should know what outcome we want. You know, I, I see this all, I'm going to change my marketing company because I'm not happy with the results. What results aren't you happy with? What specifically are you not getting? If you can't identify that, don't make the change until you can. And then when you've identified it, then make the change and find somebody who can deliver that result or can tell you that what you're looking for there simply isn't reasonable or possible and can reset your intentions a little bit. But most of the time, we're we're not connecting that. We're going with our feeling and our feeling is, I need different, I got to make a change, but we can't quantify that feeling. And when you can't quantify it and you can't specifically state what you're, you're trying to accomplish or what you're looking for, um, you're, you're just going to, you're going to get into that same cycle. You're going to feel like a hamster on a wheel and it's going to suck. No, and I think I think there's a lot of insight in what you just said there because you know you add stress, you add pressure, you add you know revenue concerns, you add staffing issues, industry changes, and to sit back and like you said about the, com- the comparison to some of the European businesses you deal with, take the time and work. You know, put on your analytical hat, put on your structured hat, maybe take off your conceptual and your emotional hat and put it on the side of the desk for a bit, which is hard to do when you are in that place. But taking the time to work through and find out, you know. I'm curious, you're not happy with the results, but by results, what exactly do you yeah. mean? That's a powerful conversation that can be very uncomfortable. Yeah, there's, there's a book uh, written by a friend of mine, Jim Keenan, called Gap Selling. And, and it's all, almost all about the discovery process. And it's about asking intelligent, pointed questions and understanding the business objectives and what you're trying to accomplish. If you do discovery right, you can help the customer win. Most salespeople suck at discovery. 
they take for face value, um, and, and this goes with not just salespeople, professional salespeople, but business owners at face yep. value, the customer knows what they're looking for. Let's just give them what they want. But is that really what they want? What, let, let's unwrap that a little bit. And when you have customers who can't unwrap that, this is why I don't, you know, I, anybody in here or anybody in my past, I don't answer, I hate RFPs. I don't like to answer RFPs. I don't want to be involved in RFPs. We will do it begrudgingly because our partners feel really strongly that they have a really good tie to this great customer, you know, and, and you lose 90% of the RFPs that you answer. Why? Because it's not a collaborative outcome-based exercise. No, you didn't get to work. You didn't get to work through the problem with. Yeah, I, I share your same sentiment with RFPs and avoid them like the plague. It's, it's not. They've never, they, the only time they were successful is when we actually helped write the RFP. Exactly. Let's be honest. Because because you genuinely understood. So if you're not there at the RFP writing stage, and I get it, like they're, they're looking. I think the RFP mentality is completely broken. Personally, um, you're not ever getting value from the answer of an RFP. What you're getting is the lowest common denominator and you're, you should expect change requests or a low quality end product. Um, but it's that same mentality where it's like, how can we hack or get a shortcut or Tim Ferriss this situation um, to, to get to try and get through all of the hard work? And I, I you know, who's that, that maniac, David Goggins. I don't know if I, I just listened to the the reason Goggins Rogan interview. That's a really <laughs> good reference, by the way. <laughs> I just listened to it on the weekend. He's a maniac, but he's right. You you have to go through the suffering. You have to go you through the, the pain. You got to go through the hard stuff if you're going to get to the outcome that you want. There is not a fast track to everything. That and this is where that that fast food immediate gratification. We tend to bring that into business, and that's the worst thing we can do as business leaders. Is, is try and get a shortcut to an objective that's really meaningful for our company. And we saw this, we're seeing a ton of this right now. You know, when COVID hit, people needed to, we have to enable our workers remotely. There was an unbelievable amount of money spent buying hardware and software and, and stuff to get people enabled. And nobody, nobody really looked at the long-term repercussions of um, upkeep, support, security. They just wanted to get people working again. Well, now, you know, you can see it, and, and we deal with this every day, our security operations team, the amount of, of ransomware-based hacks and cybersecurity incidents that are happening because people are now at home in unsafe working environments connecting to public internet uh, without the right security apparatus, uh, and, and there's nobody looking to, to fix your sanity check that because they don't want to spend money. So it's, it's just like this, this wheel. Yeah. When you start wrong, the race will go back. And, and we're going to perpetually do that when we try and cut corners. Like you, you have to take the Goggins approach and do the work, go through the misery. And when you do, you'll feel better on the flip side because you will have had the measurement, the inspection, and you'll have the accountability, which will drive the result. I couldn't agree more. It just reminds me that what's I think if I had if I had sixty minutes to solve your problem, I'd I spend fifty nine minutes trying to understand the problem and then one minute solving it. <laughs> and I, I got I got to re I got I can't keep paraphrasing that, but it just keeps coming up. I've had so many people talk about that recently, or that version of doing willing to do the work. And you get in there with that executive group, and you're like, okay, we're going to go through a discovery session. Okay, great. When are we going to get to solutioning? Yep. Like okay, well, you know, and then you find out there's misalignment in the room, and that they don't even know what their value proposition is, or they're disagreeing on who their key customer is. But yeah, we want a brochure and we want it done tomorrow. And by the way, we need a website and an online campaign. 
to who for what? Well, don't worry, we'll get we'll get to that when we get there. And it's so easy to shit on it. But if you look at it as a systemic problem throughout an, an entire organization, especially under the pressure of a deep economic transformation and COVID and the world we live in, it's a it's 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 a recipe for something very different than we're used to. And, you know, this is funny because I think it, whether you're in marketing, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're in IT, it doesn't matter the industry you're in. It is understanding the problem that is absolutely everything. And, and we rely too much, you know, oh, what is it called? I don't think I still have it on the board. I'll send it to you after. I, I can't remember the name of it. But we, we assume that people have a level of expertise that they don't have. So when a marketing company comes in and everybody marketing, I feel bad for marketing companies. because they <laughs> Oh, everyone's a marketer. Chris. You're expected to walk on water. <laughs> like you've done this before. Just create a website. Actually, we're not the experts on your business. We're the experts on taking what you give us and transitioning that into something of value. But you only get what you give. So if you give us a basic amount of information, you're going to get a basic output. That's the way the world works. But no, we want the shortcut is I'm going to pay you a lot of money, just get it done. But I don't know shit about your business. I don't know who your who, who's your your unique customer. What are the personas that are, that operate within them? What what is your product? What makes it different? How do you take it to market? Tell me about your. If you're not willing to share that information with me, you're going to get a shitty website, a shitty experience. You're not going to be happy with it, and ultimately, that's going to make me, the marketing company, look bad because you didn't do your job, which is to educate me to enable you. And that's. Uh, yeah, it it always it always comes back. There's no there's no question. Every time, and and it, yeah. this is where that maniac Goggins is absolutely right. You got to do the work. You got to put the time in. If you're not willing to, don't bother starting. There's no different. Our our CEO came. You know, I, I didn't when I first came here. I didn't own marketing. I was just taking over the sales apparatus, building out our partner channel. Um, and I said to him, eventually, you're I'm going to have to take marketing because marketing and sales is one organization. They drive the revenue together. It's not separate. And he held it back from me so that I could figure out the company, figure out the, uh, but when I took it over, you know, we've, we've really started to completely re-envision and it's not a brand change for the sake of a brand change, but completely re-envision. And we're dealing with concepts where he's just sitting there. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to you. It matters to the customer. And you're the expert on the business and the customer. You're the guy with all the stories. So what I need you to do is you're going to spend 90 minutes every week for the next foreseeable future sharing stories about your business and how you've impacted customers and what we do differently. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to take that brain dump and we're going to turn that into the material that drives our marketing. And he's like, oh, I don't know. We, we should go and do that. Just trust me. Trust me in this. Your stories are what matter because they impact customers. But people don't want to do that. You, just, you, you want the instant gratification, right? Yeah, you want to go to the time, you yeah. go execute on the tactic. Yeah, the CRO as a role, being able to oversee right from the product, right through the sales, right through marketing, like that is an interesting concept of, you know, d- different definitions of CRO, but being able to integrate those all together to make them work harder versus the, oh, the VP of marketing over here is executing on something, but had no input on the thing itself or even understanding on what the offering was. It just came product set, here's the new offering, go sell it mm-hmm. without actually fitting those things things together. So it's interesting as the world is becoming back to customer centricity. I read your LinkedIn profile this morning. I hadn't read it for a while and I did like your, uh, your initial 
initial thing about I love cliches. <laughs> so, and I did appreciate when the your first one is the customer's always right and talking about that. So, it, it, so maybe that's a good lead in. If you want to learn more about Chris, go check out his LinkedIn profile because I really I, I thought that was really engaging how you wrote your about. Everyone writes their about differently, and I think you really caught a you caught it you you caught my interest today with you had words customer centricity right at the beginning, which I think ties back very closely to kind of what you just said in terms of how you live your life. Uh, Tyler, I've, I've sort of come to a place in my life where um, I, I stopped trying to prove to people what the value I could bring was. I, I don't need to prove anything anymore. I, I look at my track record. I look at it. doesn't mean it's perfect. doesn't mean I've done everything, but I, I don't need to prove anything anymore. I know exactly what I can do. I know where I've been. I know what I've experienced. And you know, when, when I think about LinkedIn or I think about coaching and mentoring that I do, um, or that, you know, I've been working on through COVID and, and I started it pre-COVID, but COVID really helped a couple of books that I'm working on. And, and for me, it's, it's just trying to share information. It's not trying to be a know-it-all, but I do love to, to coach and share. And, uh, you know, I look at, at LinkedIn as being, I can't imagine a better community where you can go out there and add perspective and value um, to people who are out there driving business every day. And if we can change the culture of business, to be more value-based, to look at, to play the long game. Um, you know, I, sales is, is close to heart for me. If we can have salespeople who do better discovery, genuinely give a shit about their customers and not just their paycheck, mm-hmm. we can change some of the compensation models and stuff like that. I think business runs better if that happens. So for me, I'm just trying to, to be that, you know, little pebble in the water that I can be and do my part. And it gives me a sense of satisfaction and, uh, I learn every single day and oftentimes I'm wrong and I'm adjusting my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and being, and I'm okay. And I'm okay when I'm wrong. Cause I've, yeah, we'd learn more from our failures yeah. as you call I it. Want it. Show. I want to be wrong. <laughs> Prove me wrong. This is one of the things I mean, people are like, I, my, I have a hard ass wife. Like she is, she's tough on me. Like we, we take her back and forth all the time. You've met Diane. And I have, I, yep. Yeah. Some people are like, I, I don't know how you can do that. Like she, she's very, very strong. And assertive. That's what I like. I want to know when I'm wrong. I want to know when I screwed something. I want to know when I, when I said I was going to do something and I didn't follow through and do it. I want to be held accountable. I want to learn that lesson. If you just let it fly, there's nobody ever grows. I want to grow. So. I'm a firm believer. I've said this for years. I've, you, your life is going to be better if you surround yourself with worthy adversaries. And my wife is one of my most worthy. She does it. And people, oh, that sounds confrontational. I said, no, no, it doesn't. That's not negative at all. It's amazing because you got iron sharpens iron, like depending on what, what whatever metaphor or analogy you want to use. But the, the, you know, I've met your wife, worthy adversary. My wife, a worthy adversary in a very quiet, controlled, subdued way. But she's like, oh, really, Tyler? What do you mean by that? It's like, oh, okay, shit. All right, I guess I got to pay attention now. <laughs> when you flip off that, that comment in the kitchen, <laughs> but even but surrounding yourself with people like that in your business that are going to challenge you in a respectful way and push you and you know have force you to defend your position mm-hmm. uh, from a place of education not just you know flippant um, regurgitating sound bites that you maybe saw in your Facebook feed earlier that day back to your comment about we make very big decisions in our lives based on sound bites do the research spend the time understand what the actual situation or aka the problem is and you know for whether it's Calgary or, or individuals or businesses on their own journeys it's 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 solid it's solid advice it, it's man, it's man, it's mandatory there's not it's not even an option the, the alternative is you're in the ditch <laughs> it's funny we live in a, a society especially in a business society right now where we're we're data rich and we're insight poor. And, um, yes. you know, I, one of the things that, that I started when I came here is I just want to collect more data. The more information we have, the better the decisions we can make. And I met with my, 
my leadership team yesterday, and um, this is the revenue leadership team. So we're we're doing you know you got customer success, you got partner success, you got solution architecture and and marketing, and we're having you know we're going through what our quarter four and and entrance to 2021 planning is. I mean, we're making a bunch of changes, some pretty significant changes, and it's all being driven by data. And it's so much easier to get everybody pulling in the same direction when you can prove why you're doing something. It's not just the guy. Yeah. Well, I feel like we should do that. No. The data is saying we should do this, and this is the direction that we need to go in. All of a sudden, you get everybody on board, and they're pulling in the same direction. They buy in, and they believe in it. So, you know, insight insight only comes with data. Data only comes from from tracking and gathering. Um, and ultimately, you shouldn't be afraid. At least this is my philosophy, and I said it to the team yesterday. If, if you're uncomfortable with change, you, you shouldn't be here because I'm going to continue to change and tweak things. Some of it will be mistakes. Some of it will be dramatic improvements. But we're going to continue to change because complacency is death. Safe is death for us. So we're going to change people. We're going to change processes. We're going to change tools. Uh, and not for the sake of change, but to try something different, um, try and be 5% better at everything that we do. And, you know, for, for certain individuals on that team, they're sitting there and, you know, one guy's worked with me for 15 years. So he's like, yeah, it's Chris doing his thing. Hey, guys, get used to it. He's not going to yeah. change. Well, another guy's like, well, we, we don't do it like that. I'm like, who's we? Well, I don't know if it's the CEO. Everybody loves to, to lean back on the, the two most aligned people in this business are the CEO and I. We talk every day. It's amazing day. sometimes how team members don't, they underestimate that. Sometimes I'll have that myself. It was part of, we've been in business for, for years. And it's like, oh, so-and-so said this. I'm like, really? I just talked to him this morning. That's not what he said. Oh, uh, geez. Uh, anyways. Yeah. Communicate, communicate, and then communicate some more. <laughs> Leaders have to, that, that's another one that I, I you know, I, I don't remember in, in Calgary, and maybe it was just at Graycon, and it's not a, I'm not picking at Doug, but I don't think our leaders talked enough. You know, we okay. we would have our once a week meeting, and then, you know, we'd, we'd have drive-bys or, or emails, and we felt like we were communicating. That in here, when, when I came on board, and, and I find this more of a Toronto and definitely a European thing, they meet daily. We talk every, every day about all sorts of things. And it, it's not just, proving what you're doing. Here's the 10 things I did today. It's what are the things of value that are happening in the business? What are the decision points we need to get in front of? Um, you know, what, what are some big ideas? The, the conversations range all over the place. And what it, it gives us is, is propellant. I mean, I can walk into that meeting yesterday and the one guy said, well, I don't know if Alex will be on board with that. I'm, I'm telling you right now, he's 100% on board for that because we've been talking about this for three months in various conversations and we made the decision together to do this. And people are like, oh, I, he never would have made that decision before. He made it because he has data and insight and intelligence now to help drive the decision. So. Which I appreciate. We live in a world of, you know, that, 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 that we're getting more and more access to that all the time. And, you know, like you said, we're data rich, but insight, insight poor. I think there's that, that comes from bringing that data around the table and actually being able to unpack it and discuss it. But, you know, as the world moves more and more in that direction, it's going to like that level of judgment that then we can apply as humans is uh, that role of us in that change is going to become even more important as the predictions get handled, maybe a little bit by the data. And then the judgment gets brought in by the people that actually are able to then pull it all together yeah. and turns, turn it into something. Well, it's, well, Chris, I, I appreciate that thought. The one piece that I found is that people, the data and the insights and that assessment and the introspection is being avoided because people don't want to do the work on the back end. They don't want to back, to, back to your original comment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear the result. They don't want to know because if, if I'm blind to it, I can just leave it be. 
Whereas, uh, yeah, if you, we, we, need, we need to go full Goggins on our data, is what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> if anybody hasn't been familiar with David Goggins, it's worth just just taking a peek just to his philosophies and his approach to things are so interesting. It's entertaining, but there's a, there's a lot to be taken away from his, his is a very extreme version of, of it, but it's uh, it's, it's worth a peek. I would encourage you to go check it out for the entertainment value alone. I agree. Mr. Black uh, goes without saying LinkedIn and is a great way to get a hold of you. You're very active on LinkedIn. I appreciate how you, I always love your articles and your posts and your, your lots of thoughts, your introspections that you share, which I really, really appreciate. Maybe lots of time on flights to, to unpack things that end up on LinkedIn. I'm suspicious maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you if they're interested in speaking to you directly or if uh, Jolera is something that they want to learn more about from uh, employing me or actually bring you in as a partner? Hit me up on LinkedIn. Definitely. That's a, a quick way to find me or Chris B at jolera.com. Excellent, Chris. I really appreciate your time today, your insights and and your passion for all things business and all things growth. It's always something I've really enjoyed about knowing you as a friend and, and, and as a business professional and you're always moving forward. And I, I love that, man. Keep it up. Oh, thank you very much for having me.